Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Brett Weinstein. Brett's a professor of biology. He's an evolutionary theorist and well-known political and cultural commentator. He hosts the Dark Horse podcast with his wife Heather. His new book, A Hunt, a Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life is available to pre-order now. Jen, what have you been doing? My live show. Where did you stay? What was your hotel like? I stayed in Newbury. Where's that? Halfway between uh, Western Supermere and here. What'd you do? I got in. Mm-hmm. Did um, you have the beer? I did have a beer, but I didn't drink much of it. I had some bottle or bottle, draft. Bottle. What what brand? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> it was a fancy one I got in the services when I stopped off for a Zoom call. Stopped for a Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, remember? With me? Yeah. <laughs> Buying beer in the daytime. Because I thought, oh, I have to go to a, ho- a hotel on my own later. How are you going to keep it chilled? After a show, you're just so wired. Yeah. I'm wired after it. You're wired. Yeah, I'm so overstimulated by everything. But I know, it is overstimulating okay. to be in the presence of such a performer. Just making sure you're okay on stage. No, Jen. That's my job. No, Jen. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? It was fucking mental, wasn't it? Standing ovation. Yep. Crying. Who cried? Me. <laughs> um, no, like, um, and I, I mean, to be honest, it was me that did the stand innovation as well. <laughs> no, but it was a very good gig at Western Supermare. There are tickets available to some of the other shows if you want to come. I, like, I love the uh, Gareth. We did the right thing putting that audience participation back in. I tell you that it was very good. It was very good. It was very funny. What were some of the funny things? Oh, the banana, banana, the banana fellatio. Very funny. Um, the woman who did loads of random things in lockdown. Oh, yeah, she was funny. The bell ringer lady, the yeah. woman that went, she was very funny. She was very funny. Yeah. The guy that dressed in scrubs to go to a baker. We talked about people sort of like COVID. Like in the show, I talk about coronavirus and what it's done to us as a culture and what it's done to us as individuals and how we potentially could provide a template for creating a new society anyway. So, uh, you know, there's a survey. So you should fill in the survey what I wrote myself come to the show. Um, yeah, any challenges down there in Western? Challenges? No, it was nice, rocked up. Did everything. Nice to see Finn again, Finn the yeah. stage manager. Yeah, I hadn't seen him in a long time. He's a nice guy. You like being on the road or is it weird? I love touring. Do you? Yeah, but it's a bit stressful when I have a normal job, which is also working for you. <laughs> what do you think about when Finn you see me up there? Finn was saying I was moonlighting, but you were the boss I was moonlighting from. What about to see me up there in my glory with all the adulation? Good for I you. I didn't remember. I was like, oh, he, yeah, he's quite funny. See? <laughs> oh, Russ, you got something. And then summit. I went backstage again. <laughs> no, you sucked into it. Make sure that that footage is good, Jen, because I want to put I some of that stuff up online. Try my best. Anyway, there's no point talking shop. Did you see anyone you fancied? Any chisel no. chins? Do you want me to try and give me a famous person, please? No, why do you want a famous person? person someone for? who's already got like somewhere to live. You've got somewhere to live. You live in a nice Not house. Not me. Don't you? I want them to have their own. Oh, well, you don't want to date the poor. No, if they're gonna. What's just, wrong with the poor? I've already sacrificed for the poor. What have you given <laughs> the poor? relationship. You've done your bit for the poor. Yeah, in a relationship. Now it's time for the rich. Well, I want someone to look after me. Some chisel chin. Don't matter, male, female, non-binary, just all someone, irrelevant. Can, you nice must know someone. Come on. Chin and a bit of money. Think of someone really nice and handsome. Chinny you know. money bags. <laughs> you want someone from the chinny money bags selection? Come on. You must know someone. Uh, I don't. I don't know anyone, Jen. What? No. I don't know anyone right for you. Uh, Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan's not right for you, <laughs> yeah, Jen. Steve you need Coogan. someone. Je- Steve Coogan's got a terrific taste in that in in the arena of love. He dates real <laughs> cracking sorts. <laughs> the last thing he needs is hey. to find you 
prowling about the place, coiling about the place, all tangled up in the what? net curtain, looking out the window. What have you tangled up in the net curtain? Messing around in his little... He's probably got something he puts his change in. He don't need you. A little bowl. You know, I like yeah. the change bowls. You keep your little spindle fingers out of the change bowl. Like, it's also the key bowl? He might, Steve would leave his <laughs> keys on a console in the free. He's got a nice house. There'd be and the then, keys go on a console in a different bowl, probably a like, nice long bowl. And there'd be a mirror by that, a nice mirror. It'll be done by a proper design company. And the line could come in. Yeah, bring your make, dirty little make, keys. Make. Your key around a bit of string for your little shed you live no. in. Your, like, your little twig that opens a divot in a ditch. Yeah. Hey, I've got a nicer car than you. I don't define myself by vehicles. Well, why are you picking on my keys? Just to fill the <laughs> Jen. Frankly, Jen, I'm fulfilling the section known as banter decanter. That's all I'm doing. It's a little like thing called hear. professionalism. Banter decanter. When else do I talk to you like this? Never. Have you put on banter decanter? Yeah, yeah, just it will go in. You can't hear oh, it. You don't have I headphones don't. on. Let's listen to comments now from Ian McGilchrist, who I'm still in love with. Now time for comments. Wild Fig Solutions. Great episode. Ian's a genius. Studio to London. Brilliant at Russell Brand. I love McGilchrist's work. I was hoping you would have him on your show one day. Left brain, right brain's fascinating topic. Looks like the universe is aligning itself. Sarah.endipity. Like that name. The episode is basically worth the subscription to Luminary. That's how I feel about Dave Chappelle's podcast. And ours, two podcasts. <laughs> Listen, yeah. right, so thank you for those comments. Did you do a, were you putting a thing for the comments? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, Listen, a shout out, shout outs, Apple and Apple reviews. Listen, a shout outs. Re, re1712 says, absolutely brilliant. Easy listen, really changes your perspective on things. Get on Apple and give us five stars. How are you getting on over there, clacky fingers, Alicia? What are you doing? Booking another holiday? How many holidays do you need a year? At least 21 days. She's like Judith Chalmers. This happened when I went there. on holiday the first time as well. Judith Chalmers. You, you don't even need an holiday. You're powerless what? day. If you get sunlight on you, <laughs> you'll, turn into a, you'll turn into a melanoma and fall down a little drain. <laughs> Alicia, she's only just on the team. You ought to be grinding your fingers to the bone instead of clacking around on eight-inch nails. <laughs> Typing away like it's Fred Astaire, <laughs> click clacking across the tables. Anyway, I think you're a good workforce and I do support your right to unionise. <laughs> I should be in the union as it's shop steward. Laura Eden says, thank you for creating such interesting and refreshing content I can absorb. I've only just recently subscribed to your Under the Skin podcast, but I've been accessing your material for years through YouTube, etc. Your words always seem to cut through the noise, which makes my ears prick up. So see. Keep up the amazing work, Russell. Your work is seriously having a profound impact on me. Your articulation on such complex issues is incredible, for which I'm grateful. Hey, watch this space because I'm going to do a mad live event in a field. Why are you laughing at my live event? Why are you snorting? Why old... field? I just feel like Is I it going to be, be in Glastonbury or Froome? No, it's going to be nearby. And I'm going to be... What I want is to turn up in the back of the van, the back doors of the van, fling open. There I am, old Russ. Someone presents me with, with a mic. Yeah, I'm sat in the back of the van. It's just a camper van and they've got a bed bit there and I'm just perched there and then there's a... You know, I reverse out. And then I do my show out the back of the van. What do you think, Jen? Should be pretty straightforward. Yeah, we book the, the reverse, tents. is it going to be a manual? <laughs> I'm not driving the van, Jen. I'm perched. <laughs> I thought you reverse up and then you pop out. No, I want, as it reverses, I want, like, as it comes to a halt, I want the doors to fling open and there I am. I don't want, like, I have to have to 
come clambering over the passenger seats, getting my, my little shoesies tangled up in a handbrake. Why a van? I don't know. I just have always liked vans. Always. Ever since I was like, the first TV product I'd done was uh, on a van. Was that, like, that, that when that thing happened? Yeah, the thing did happen. I was, <laughs> I was very drunk and like I, I air-sicked up gin gin yeah. fumes on top of the van and I, I was uncooperative I was mentally unwell <laughs> hey I've got a new podcast called Above the Noise I've got a brand new meditation called that out now I'll be releasing a new guided meditation every single Wednesday go check it out and let me know what you think they're getting better and better these meditations I'm doing private one on one meditations with people they're all experiencing are they planned? nope <laughs> what do you mean planned? like do people know these private one on ones are going to happen? I just spring them on them are they over the phone? No, could be live, could be all of a sudden. If anyone needs salvation, <laughs> oh, Russ, he's your fella. Also, live dates. Come and see me do my stand-up show, 33. Tickets are available at russellbrand.com. You should be subscribing to the mailing list by now. Um, you get, like, videos I don't do anywhere else. You get all sorts of stuff there. And um, if you've got any mental health issues or any issues, really, I'll do my level best to help thee. Won't I, Jen? Yeah. <laughs> I'd to help you. You've gotten better, haven't you? No. Yes, you I have. think worse. What, what do you mean? Talk to me about the dark times, Jen. Every, no. On your own, bedtime, is that when it's dark? No, it's the morning. Bed, best time, shut off brain. Morning, not, you not... feel a bit despairing, do you, when you wake up? That's normal, and Jen. And then during the day. Get right up out of the, the bed. <laughs> Get right up out of the bed, Jen. No one ever achieved anything being half in and half out of the bed, as Jeff Boycott said. Sign up for my YouTube channels for spiritual videos and political videos, Awakening with Russell Brand, love. And if you want a free podcast, and thank you for subscribing to this one, Listen to football is nice. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Thanks for coming on Under the Skin, Brett. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. How are you coping at the moment with, because it's, 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 it's difficult, isn't it? Because even is talking about censorship censored? Uh, one doesn't know. It's kind of a, there's clearly a, a question that, uh, you know, the kids like to call these things meta. And uh, it is that. Uh, I, I think we're allowed to talk about censorship. I don't know how long that, that will last, uh, but it is quite breathtaking to see some force who knows what it is attempting to intercede in conversations about essential matters of how we govern ourselves. It's a, it's a fundamental breach of trust for, for Western civilization. I found, I follow your stuff on YouTube, Dark Horse. I've been following you for ages, you know, most probably like a lot of people because you were on Joe Rogan and like, and, and some of the, the sort of the, was it, is it evergreen that, you know, that stuff, you know, I've been following all of that for a while. And I've been following the things that you, you've been saying about coronavirus and i have felt like it's been from my personal opinion of that what it was quite balanced and quite circumspect and at points you know rather frightening but i took that to be as a result of the information rather than the manner in which the information was being conveyed given the kind of contributors you were dealing with and their um, credentials so 
I am obviously I'm a broadcaster working on the same platforms that you work on, even though this particular podcast is behind a paywall. And I imagine that gives us a degree of safety in some regard. And audio is not so sort of, I don't know, censored or sensational as the, you know, the stuff we do on platforms specifically like YouTube. But like um, I am surprised. I'm surprised by what's happened to you. And uh, I wonder how you feel about it emotionally and and your frustration and what challenges it presents for you? It presents tremendous number of challenges. I think one of the reasons that I'm in the position I'm in is that I'm pretty good at managing the emotional fallout of really spectacular and disheartening events. So, you know, you mentioned Evergreen, and I think a lot of people saw someone navigate a situation that many of them, according to the thousands of pieces of correspondence they sent me would not have managed well themselves. And they saw somebody deal with it as, as well as possible. And uh, that set my current course in motion. But I have to say this, this is really disheartening. And the implications of our inability to have frank, useful discussions about where we are, and maybe more to the point, the demonization of those who attempt to start those conversations, it suggests something quite bleak about where we're headed. And, you know, we have all of these crises or crises that threaten to emerge. But the real issue is that those are symptoms of a system that is flawed and that is not honest about the, the downsides of what it is doing. We have to talk about that. And if we can't talk about that, then our inability to talk about it is the most important issue there is. The only way we get out of this is if we can figure out what a rational course is and attempt to steer it. For obvious reasons, I've tried not to get mired in or even to some degree proselytize on, comment on some of the pharmacological aspects of what's happening around vaccination. I have commented on the regis uh, on the legislation regulation and the kind of enthusiastic uptake by um a, you know a significant majority of people for their own censorship and their own regulation and the um conceding of their own liberty and that surprises me and it surprises me too that and I guess this is something that has precedence and something that you've been directly involved with, re your uh, challenges in academia or the sort of at least discourse in the environment of academia. I, what troubles me is we don't seem to be able, we aren't permitted to have conversations about complicated subjects. Now, I, like, what I feel personally is that that's sort of almost more frightening that's almost more frightening than anything else. And I think it's clear that over-regulatory societies, you know, are bordering on tyranny. And it feels to me that we're yielding a, a lot of authority in addition to what's been happening in the last 10 years as a result of technological advances in surveillance and, you know, with the, you know Patriot Act and all of that. And it seems to me that this in a sense, is a surprising advance of those kind of ideas. More, but yet more troubling is the inability to have open conversations and disagree with people. That said, where do you, 
f- f- like I never would have thought of you as a person that's even on the right. Like, so I don't even know how these labels are getting banded around. You know, like, I, like for when people are talking about right and wing and left wing, I'm getting like kind of confused when people talk, for example, about Silicon Valley is communist. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure they're not. I'm pretty sure these are <laughs> private enterprises that are interested in the free market or at least a propped up free market. Um, yeah, so I'm clearly not on the right. And, you know, that's not just my assertion. If, you know, I don't take it to be a purely objective or perfect measure. But if if I take the political compass test, for example, uh, people will have seen the the graphs that emerge from this where it places you in a four quadrant uh, matrix. I come out very far left and quite far what they label somewhat misleadingly libertarian, which is Mm. as opposed to authoritarian. Mm. And so what that means is I place an incredibly high value on liberty and uh, self-determination, but I also am strongly progressive. I believe that we have very serious problems and that actually, well, the way I usually put it is I am a reluctant radical because radicalism itself is dangerous and I'm not enthusiastic about being radical, but I think nothing short of radical change can actually pull us out of the subtle nosedive that we find ourselves in, which, you know, you, you have identified the core reason for it, which is we, we are not even allowed to have an open discussion about where we are and what it means. I'm astonished that this happened and I'm astonished that there's no resistance. And I'm kind of surprised by the, I would have always assumed that I was a person on the left, other than like you, a kind of a liber, what would be referred to as a libertarian um, sort of streak or bent or persuasion. And for me, that's always meant I just want to be left alone. I don't want people telling me what to do. But I've never accompanied, that's never for me been accompanied, well, God, psychologically, it probably has been with kind of selfishness and stuff. But these, my my morality and my personal ethics and what I strive for is a community-based, autonomous, respectful progressive independent community democracy is what like i feel like would be an interesting development what i feel like we found ourselves in is an authoritarian puritanical centralized dominant sensorial tyranny that isn't even i mean at least when it used to when it happened in the last century they had they wore badges and it, there were flags, and it was pretty clear that something was up from the graphic design. Now yes, the, it's sort uh, of... the goose stepping was a strong indicator that something was amiss. <laughs> Hello, this doesn't seem to be about freedom. You're all wearing the same <laughs> shoes. No, I I, uh, I agree with you about this entirely. And uh, you know, I've done a lot of thinking, and I have a, a certain number of tools for trying to parse these things so so people can get. Um, better resolution on it. Um, One thing that I think is very important is the recognition that there are really two ways to define liberty. And if you define liberty as simple freedom to do whatever you want, it does not maximize the amount of actual freedom that people enjoy. That actually freedom, uh, what I would call realized freedom or realized liberty, is the ability to act on your freedoms. So a society that truly liberates the largest number of people would be one that had solved their other problems, right? You're not really liberated if you're struggling to make ends meet, if you're living in fear of 
uh, being wiped out by healthcare crisis, for example. Mm. So uh, a society that sought to truly liberate people would not be a fully unregulated society. And that, I think, is the question. When we are looking at regulatory schemes or regulations, we have to ask ourselves, is, is this one that enhances our liberty or, or retards it? You know, so to take one example, if you think about air travel, air travel is as thoroughly regulated as any normal activity, right? I mean, from the moment you step in the airport, you're, you're highly regulated, as is every aspect of the operation of the airplane and the airport itself. What is the effect of that? Well, it allows you to step on a, uh, a machine in one city and fly virtually anywhere else in the world and be there in less than a day. That is a tremendous amount of liberty that comes from the regulation that uh, has been instituted there. And it's been very successful. It's as, you know, you're, you're never safer than when you're on an airplane, short of having a, a heart attack or a stroke. There's really nothing that can happen to you uh, while you're traveling that way. So there, there is something, if, if, if you just simply throw off all the regulations, you, you will be less, less free in the end. Hmm. And I don't think there are many people whose idea of perfect freedom is the ability to wander in an airport, armed to the teeth, drunk, <laughs> without a ticket, and to demand safe passage to Havana. Like, but, like, but, what, but what I suppose is happening is that what's being mapped onto us now is a degree of regulation that invites a kind of uh, unconsciousness. I'm surprised, Brett. I feel like, you know, I watch your content i follow your content i watched in particular say the video with you and i believe it's robert malone and the other guy and it feels like i felt like what i was watching was three scientists talking in a cautious circumspect measured manner about their concerns based on evidence around the introduction of new potentially mandatory medication and reported anomalies and the way those anomalies have been handled the potential consequences of spike proteins and the fact that they don't stay local to the site of injection that there's organic like uh, i don't know sort of contamination or infection i don't i'm not a scientist as you will have deduced uh, and i felt like this conversation if you were like a person that's i want to have a vaccine i don't care that where's the where's the harm in that and Whenever I've done content myself where I've talked about, um, you know, sort of whether it's vaccines or the sort of the regulations around it or vaccine passports, I've always been cautious because of my respect for liberty and because I don't really agree with sensationalism or idiocy. And I would hate to think that I'd contributed to a situation where a significant and important medical breakthrough was undermined by kind of like tin hat wearing conspiracy theorists that just want to argue with progress in all its forms you know that's really not where i see myself but that's also not where i feel like we've been you know you don't need to spend too long on youtube to see that people are saying some pretty wacky stuff and i feel like you know there's all sorts of ideas that i'm open to brett but unless someone says to me here's some evidence for it i go that's a nice theory and it's baroque and it's colorful and i can see how that fits in with wow jungian archetypes and ideas about myths and fear around power but i'd like to see a paper trail and for me usually what i look at is 
Does the state benefit from this because it gives them more power? Do powerful corporate interests benefit from this because it gives them more money? And if the answer to both of those questions are yes, then I feel like a subject is worthy of further investigation. Tell me how you feel having had much of your content removed from YouTube and facing, as I believe you do, considerable censorship, which I acknowledge is probably a sensitive subject for you to talk about as it is ongoing. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't sensitive. I think it calls attention to itself. And, you know, maybe maybe this is the way to do it. Let's give the the scolds and the new enthusiasts for censorship their due. In the case of the coronavirus pandemic, there's a question about whether this is the moment to have certain conversations. And the reason that that is a question is that there has always been a conflict between the public health analysis and the individual health analysis, which if individuals, for example, if, if we talk about naive libertarianism, where one regards their interaction with the medical system as purely a personal matter, then you can actually mess up a public health uh, campaign that actually has massive benefits for the public, right? In other words, um, to the extent that we are able to, let's say, extinguish a pathogen through a vaccination campaign, that's a positive thing for humanity. And to the extent that individuals hold out because they personally have another perspective, that can get in the way and it can actually cause us to become permanently stuck with the pathogen. The problem in this case is that I think many people imagine that they are participating in a noble lie about the coronavirus and our plan to do something about it. And in fact, there is no evidence that the lie that they are party to is a noble lie. In fact, if you look at its content, if you look at the people who are steering it, there is every reason to suspect that it is about something else that is not the public's interest. And that is why I am most alarmed. We have to be able to discuss that question. Is this a public health analysis which has been simplified for the public, but in general is in all of our interests to participate and get on board? Or is it something else? Is it corporate? And I, I, I must tell you, I feel like some, something has knocked 15 IQ points off everybody's intelligence. And people who under ordinary circumstances are completely aware of the level of corruption, of governance and regulation that has taken over in the West are somehow behaving as if that couldn't possibly be playing a role in this circumstance. And I don't know where they could possibly have gotten that idea. I mean, th this on in an ordinary year is such a dominant force in shaping policy that I think a strong argument can be made. And it's actually, in fact, been measured. The degree to which the public interest affects policy it's a minor factor. And somehow people who under ordinary circumstances would understand that and be capable of discussing it rationally are behaving as if uh, suddenly we're all on board with the same plan. And I, I, I can't understand it. I felt that there's an eeriness when I've been when I was watching the kind of 
enthusiastic, somewhat kind of, what do I want to say? Like a kind of dreamlike, giddy, uncanny acceptance that we're all kind of like the sort of rebooting of patriotism and zeal around it that I found unnerving, even stuff in just like unpopular entertainment. I found it a little bit unnerving and jarring to observe. When you say that there's a kind of like that, you know, there could be an agenda other than the public health interests of ordinary people necessarily simplified because, you know, because of people can't, don't can perhaps you could say people don't carry complexity well is there uh, uh, evidence or or a reasonable suggestion that there could be alternative motivations well it, you know it's very hard for us on the outside to know but let's just say the curtain gets pulled back every now and again and what one sees behind it is quite shocking i mean even just the fact that you know in the u.s Anthony Fauci is the the face of the public health uh, campaign. It is shocking to me that Anthony Fauci, in addition to being the face of public health, also happens to be one of a tiny number of figures who was involved in circumventing the Congress's ban on gain-of-function research and conveying money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for that very research, which may well have caused the pandemic in the first place. And at some level, I don't know exactly why the ban was circumvented. I don't know what research might have led to the pandemic. I'm in no position to see inside any of that. But what I can say is finding Anthony Fauci involved in both the story of where the virus may have come from and the story of how we're going to address it does not make me comfortable. It makes me feel like there is some story I don't yet know. And it's hard to imagine that it is my interests that are being looked out for. It's troubling, isn't it? And this, it seems even like over the last few days, it's come out that the, that the virus was present and detected in Wuhan as early as September, 2019. And there were, went to considerable effort to to suppress that information and i su i suppose even if you take out the particular details of this enormous story as you uh in, as you said earlier brett look at the our ordinary understanding of our relationships between the corporate state and the population and how frequently corporate and financial interests are placed ahead of the interests of people. In a way, do you think, Brett, that the reluctance to entertain the evident complexity of this story is due in part to that if you do entertain it, you start to unravel the necessary illusion of a degree of trust in the state that you can't, that it's not easy to say, hold on a minute, why the, the guy that's involved in the research and the potential <laughs> errors that led to the pandemic in the first place is guiding public health on the matter. That wasn't initially, we've seen in Congress him talking to Rand Paul and denying that and then the information slowly becoming, like that is sort of, for a lot of people, kind of unbearable and easier. It's easier to stay in a 
marriage that looks like it might be creaking desperately towards an abyss rather than face life alone like a fatherless future like oh my god we god is dead um, our ethics are dead is it is it that brett we can't handle yeah. the truth we can't handle the truth um some of us can handle the truth and some of us have been attempting to call attention to i, I don't want to say the truth that's obviously you know intentionally glib but some of us have been attempting to call attention to the contradictions and their obvious implication. And what's more, this isn't, you know, a pre-industrial society. The corruption of our governance structures is putting us in rather immediate jeopardy. But the problem is, I mean, I think you've picked the, the right analogy. I was thinking of something very similar. The person who uh, blinds themselves to what's going on in, in their relationship, for example, because the prospect of facing a breakup in life alone is just too unthinkable. And so they convince themselves that it's not, it's not uh, that what is in front of them is not in fact there. And I think this is, this is right too, that people have been, um, I think they haven't, I wouldn't say they've been rightly scared of the coronavirus, in many ways, their fears have been misplaced, but there is ample reason to be afraid of the coronavirus, as Heather and I have been saying since uh, very early in the pandemic. It's a very frightening pathogen, even if it's not an especially deadly one. Um, so people have been, have they've had their fears revved up. It's been used to manipulate them. Many imagine that the manipulation is a natural part of a rational response. And others of us see something frightening about it, that it's just incoherent. And it has caused them to sideline skepticism that on any other day would be present. Do you apply the skepticism sometimes to the side of the argument that appears to make most sense to you? Because sometimes I feel, because I'm in a complex position in that, you know, I've been around in the public eye for a while and it, even in the limited spheres of sort of celebrity tittle-tattle, endured controversy, endured sort of attempts at public shaming. And like, you know, I've been through that like a few times, a surprising amount for given that I don't, I'm not a politician. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like it's happened a lot, four times, maybe five. And like, and I can see like it's happened to you sort of twice, but look at the areas you're operating in, like sort of ideals that are, and evidently I inadvertently have been. Otherwise, I suppose these things couldn't have happened. So, but it's been certainly less deliberate and, 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 and less conscious in, in my case. Do you ever apply that level of scrutiny? Because I suppose what people that essentially agree with the um, increasingly mandated version of truth would say is well how could it, this how that's not possible that in the the pharmaceutical companies in collusion with the government uh were and big tech bring about a state where something on this scale is proposed mandated uh, like to, to what end simply for profit simply for profit are there not easier ways of making a profit are there not better ways of covering tracks they just get rid of Fauci put someone else in there blame the Chinese outright just say this is the China you know what I mean there's so there'll be different ways of handling it don't what about that or do you find that kind of speculation a bit sort of frivolous 
No, it's it's essential. And I would say, A, we all have to recognize that human beings naturally have a tendency to confirm their own biases, that we also have an ability not to do that, and that these things exist in tension for a reason. But if you're going to be any good at sorting out what's actually taking place in any complex system, in, including civilization, one has to get good at trying on alternative explanations and seeing whether they better explain the observable evidence than whatever it is that you have settled on as the most likely. I mean, that's that's fundamental to the way scientists look at the world. And doesn't mean that everybody who has the label scientist does this because for lots of people, effectively, they get uh, focused in on such a narrow question or set of questions that really the work doesn't involve a lot of questioning. There's a lot of just sort of doing. Uh, but for those of us who are interested in the bigger picture, this is the skill. It is a matter of looking at something that you think you understand mostly and saying, is there some explanation that would be better. And I must tell you the discovery that something that you believe is not likely to be true because something else better explains what you see is, is profound. I mean, you know, we call it the Eureka moment for a reason. And when it happens, the cascading events, all of the things that are if affected by the change in your belief structure, um, you know, they just like, you just watch all of the elements of some complex equation cancel out and something very simple emerges in front of you. And um, if you've had it happen, it's, it's very meaningful. So yeah, I'm constantly checking with alternative explanations, including the explanations that my worst critics point at me. I don't love it. I often think my worst critics are just simply motivated by a destructive impulse, but one has to check because, you know, even somebody being a jerk doesn't mean they're wrong. No. Is it like as an evolutionary biologist or elsewhere in your life, perhaps spiritually or emotionally, have you experienced anything like that Eureka moment? Have you been able to alter your perspective of yourself or of reality either scientifically or as I say, emotionally? Yeah, I, uh, I know, I know just what you're asking. I, I wonder what you'll think of the answer. So I, I have come to, I, I certainly want in some sense to be a spiritual person because, because of the way people speak about it. And I find at 52 years old that I'm about the least spiritual person on earth, which I, I have come to accept. But that said, what that means is as I look at the world and attempt to understand what it is and why it works the way it does, I keep running into something that when I was teaching college students, I used to call the cosmic joke, right? The cosmic joke is what you understand when you see something from a position that allows some kind of clarity, right? You keep, you know, if you look out at a forest, it's all very beautiful, right? But when you understand what it actually is, even just for a moment, you understand, you know, that you're looking at, uh, hundreds of species of creatures that three and a half billion years ago or so had a common ancestor and they fanned out separately into the universe and have found different ways of advancing through time. And, you know, so you're looking at a squirrel and an oak tree that, uh, 
are actually relatives of each other, that's kind of um, deep, right? When you see it. So uh, the other way to look at it is to say that I keep, when I, when I do my work well, when I do the evolutionary theory well, and I extrapolate to what it means for how one ought to live a life, I often land on something that sounds to me very much like Buddhism, right? And so I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. I didn't study it. I'm not looking for Buddhism in the world, but I do find that a, an analytical approach, maybe even a pathologically analytical approach, lands on formulations that sound an awful lot like it. And that has a meaning to me. The, when you talk about looking at a sort of a complex biological system, particularly in this case of forest and seeing the hundreds of life forms and the various ways that the challenges presented by survival have been tackled and noting that they come from necessarily from a single point of origin. And for me, when I hear you say that, I hear the kind of the implication of telos, of a kind of purpose beyond language, actually, something that can't be uh, symbolically represented or understood through signifiers, but nonetheless tells a kind of story. That's one way I understand it, the idea of purpose, intention, just by virtue of the fact of the isness. Secondarily, this idea of time, when dealing with boundless time, boundless time it's almost as if it were happening simultaneously almost as, as if it is all happening at once as if it all could be by the mind of god by a mind beyond time you could it would just be like watching water spill just like an event that's happening instantaneously for all its apparent complexity from our position of scale we're not scaled only by dimension we are temporally scaled and the brilliant English writer Robert McFarlane who's sort of like a I guess a mountaineer and travel writer and literary professor I think like sort of in his book talks about going sort of into various underlands and cave spaces and talked about a like sort of being startled when in a cave at looking at some like what he took to be a falling rock but and realized oh no it's like it's attached to the ceiling but it is indeed falling over time and over time the mountains move towards the sea and and i can see that in the sort of the complexity of your understanding of evolutionary you can sort of get a glimpse of something that might be understood as the mind of god and to, to again to my original point that when i talk about spirituality much of that for me is about values and the willingness to sacrifice personal comfort say for something you believe in is a spiritual value and is, an, to me, an indication of faith, a belief that there are some... Th where else do you derive principles from? Where, why, why is, what is truth? Why is truth valuable? Even if you are a sort of a secular humanitarian, from where is your humanitarianism derived? Why not nihilism? Why not hedonism? Why not suicide right now? You know, and for me, all of this is a sort of a various presentations of divinity and the sacred speaking to us in a manner that exceeds language and is beyond language. That's beautiful. I, I wish I had been taking notes because there are about 20 points in there that really need a deeper dive. But one thing I would say is, you know, you mentioned that 
there's this question about can you handle the truth? And there's one interpretation of that. If you look at the simple description of how the universe actually works, as well as we can paint that picture at the moment, we literally can't handle the truth. A normal mind does not fathom it. You know, we've been struggling with quantum mechanics uh, and can't manage to wrap our minds around it, which it's obviously happening or something that causes us to see quantum mechanics is happening, hmm. but our minds don't make good sense of it. And so what we do instead is we build models that aren't, so I call these things literally false, metaphorically true. And that can encompass anything. It can encompass, let's say, Newtonian mechanics, which is literally not right, but it's so good for almost all purposes that you can live a life based on the, uh, the fiction of Newtonian mechanics and succeed beautifully. So we have a problem, which is that we're doing pretty well for creatures that uh, happened right? In terms of understanding how the universe happens, we're, we're, we're doing all right, but we probably shouldn't expect ourselves to, to grok it all too easily. And the, the process of figuring out, so in a, what I'm really getting at is this, when you talk about meaning and purpose, I think this is one you can see pretty clearly if you want to. I don't know how useful it is. For some people, it's the stuff of existential crises. For some people, it's a tremendous relief. And I know that because I watched hundreds of students grapple with it. But imagine the following thing. Every single creature that has ever existed on earth has had the identical purpose. That means it's not a very good purpose, right? For you to have the same purpose as a, a malaria a uh, plasmodium, uh, an oak tree, a liver fluke. It's, it's a pretty generic, unfortunate purpose. And we know what it is, unfortunately. We can spell it out. The purpose is to get your genes as far into the future as you can, right? It's not even really about reproduction. It's about sticking around. That said, the mechanisms whereby all of the creatures that have ever existed here and presumably anywhere else that creatures exist, the mechanisms are tremendously variable. And we humans have been gifted, I'm speaking purely metaphorically, we've been gifted with the most amazing mechanism of all, which is the ability to understand what we are and where we are and what we might do. And that ability also allows us, we are effectively the only creatures on earth that can take the purpose that we were handed by selection and swap it out for something that's actually worthy of us. And my sense is, to the extent that I am a guy who believes ultimately, even, even if we were to get a grasp on where we are and be very successful as people and put, a, put our differences aside and survive indefinitely, ultimately there's nothing we can do about the, the collapse of the universe. So ultimately this is futile no matter what we do. But that also gives us an opportunity, just in the same way that our own death gives meaning to our life. The fact that we know this doesn't last forever allows us to make use of the time we have. We could do the same thing as a species. And what I, happy to unpack this further if you want to, but 
what I think I understand is that once you realize where we are, there's actually a fairly straightforward obligation about what we must do. And it involves rewriting our own purpose so that we are no longer robots doing our genes bidding, but we are something better. And we will be the first species on earth to have done that. And if we fail, I don't think we'll be here 500 years from now. What do we do about consciousness, though, Brett, in this description, where we can't understand how sort of through this increasing complexity, the inadvertent side effect of consciousness arises and that consciousness itself becomes the obviously what defines and indeed entirely is our experience. When we talk about the collapse of the universe, we're talking only about the necessary collapse of the material mechanical universe. We're not talking about the collapse of consciousness unless of course you believe as, as, as i obviously understand that you do that consciousness is a byproduct of material bio, biological evolution whereas you know what i believe is a wacky religious type that consciousness precedes matter and is panpsychically present was always present and like not in a i hasten to add not in a hopelessly cod way the mysteries that you touched upon in the quantum realm and their inability to interface with all but the tip of those quarkbergs or whatever you would like to call them like is an indication that somehow well as as in you know like let's not hide the fact that what i believe is a, a religious belief like it would say in a verdict philosophy that from the field of from the limit the infinite field or the unified field emerges all phenomena, emerges all material, emerges all forms of vibration, all forms of expression, like you said earlier in your analogy of the com- or description of the complexity of a forest, all emerging from oneness, that, that I understand this oneness and consciousness to be not, not only connected, but this, the, the same thing. And this is what for me, even though you could one could say well that in a way doesn't make a great deal of difference because there is no sort of version of reality where i get to be somewhere else as me laughing about my spoils and triumphs and sighing over my disasters i returned into such an a, an all-consuming oneness that my individuality is once and for all necessarily and gratefully in some ways lost it still for me provide something beyond the mechanisms and 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 i do not you know again i suppose as a scientist this is perhaps an area that's difficult for you to pontificate upon but do you in this in how the the metaphor of quantum physics that perhaps could be regarded as metaphorical in the same way that newtonian physics could be as you alluded to uh recognize that in what is visible is the implication of something else and while it's fanciful and magical thinking to infer what that might be and ridiculous to sort of solidify and narrativize what that thing might be um it's still the likelihood of things being beyond our comprehension is that's a certainty we've already sort of discussed that and if i add to the mystery of consciousness the veracity of love the veracity of community the sort of continual imprinting of certain identifiable recognizable cultural patterns that recur sort of mythically and theologically do these not point to at least the potential for something beyond the sort of rudimentary mechanics in in, in all their glorious complexity i mean you really want to know <laughs> of course I do. 
Okay. I mean, first of all, I have to tell you, you and I are miles apart in terms of our description of what the experience of being human means. But I don't think we're different at all in terms of, you know, the lyrics are different. The melody, I resonate with exactly what you're saying. I just get there differently, right? And it's a bit like the discovering Buddhism at the end of uh, a rigorous analysis, right? It's uh, it's comforting when one does, actually. Hmm. But I think the problem is that if we want, we can take the lovely thing that you've just said <laughs> and point out all the reasons that it's unlikely to be true in some narrow sense. But that's kind of... Uh, stingy, <laughs> right? There's a way in which it's just not generous. And so my sense is, look, you're a creature with a very difficult job, right? Not only do you have to navigate a world that is unlike the one that your ancestors, any of your ancestors would have experienced, but it's a rapidly changing world and you have to navigate it with at least a degree of consciousness. What should that consciousness contain in order that you don't, um, you know, freeze up at the recognition of all of the hazards and your inability to calculate why they will not impact, you know, your ability to maintain homeostasis on the way to your car, right? That's a, it's a calculation you can't do. Should the fact that you can't do it paralyze you? Hopefully not. So maybe you need to tell yourself some little lie. Just the same way your skin doesn't report the temperature of every square centimeter every second of the day. If it did, you wouldn't be able to do anything else. So you have to ignore the temperature at all of the different locations of your skin in order to get by. Is that you in denial of temperature? No, it's just a useful heuristic for dealing with the complexity of living. And so what I hear you saying is a, I would say, highly refined model of the universe that does a lot of the heavy lifting that needs to be done. Does it do it in a way that somebody who scrutinized each sentence would be able to defend in the most rigorous of terms? No. But is it right enough, right? You know, I hang up when you get to panpsychism, right? The reason I hang up, the reason that you and I will probably not come to any sort of agreement on this, is that I have studied the same phenomenon from a different point of view. And to me, the recognition that consciousness is an adaptation, that it arose through a process similar to the one that creates wings and eyes and everything else, and that therefore, we have to be able to look at it and say, well, what does its nature suggest about its purpose, its utility? Right. I think that's just a very tractable question. Lots of people see consciousness as an intractable question. I frankly don't. I see some things that other people regard as highly tractable as intractable. But in this case, my sense is I've looked at consciousness. I love it. It's it's a wonderful process. It's in many ways, it's the most important, most interesting, most human process we've got. And so I cherish it, but I don't I don't view it as beyond the realm of rational analytic study. On the other hand, if that wasn't, you know, I'm one of very few people for whom the exact nature and origin of consciousness might be important, right? For almost everybody else, 
You don't need to know what it's for or where it came from. And it may be highly effective to imbue it with a kind of meaning that can't quite be defended. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I find nothing troubling about hearing you talk about panpsychism and you may just be better off than I am for looking at consciousness that way. But if you're asking me, does that square with a uh, first principles understanding of the universe? No, it doesn't. Um, but you know, who cares? No, yeah, in a sense, no one does really because it becomes a kind of a poetics in a sense. Because how would it? How does it affect the decisions we make about how we organise a society? Other than, in a sense, I think the mythologizing of meaning itself and the veneration of the experience of life. It's, there might be, a, a, you know, to use a word you've used, a utility to that. Now, but to return again to that, um, to that term, what, Brett, is the utility for evolved consciousness in the model that you describe? And how could it be? And like, you know, we can see what wings are doing. And I'm sure there were points in the journey of wings and indeed eyes where it's like it wasn't like it was going next to the eyelash, then the lens. But consciousness has provided... You know, a pot <laughs> it seems a field for all, but like, you know, again, I, I, like how, how would and why would mutation and adaptation provide such an all-encompassing phenomena? And, and a, a phenomenon so prone to screwy errors, right? Like a wing tends to be really good for flying. Consciousness can get you into trouble. Right. Every day. I guess wings can too, technically. But um, all right, let me let me address that. I will say that this is um, Heather and I have a chapter on consciousness in our upcoming book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which will be coming just, on to discuss in a, a matter of, of, of hours. Imagine that. Um, so anyway, that will be marvelous. And we should revisit this uh, with, Go on, with Heather present. But um, so I, I want to make two points. One, I think. The, the thing you have to do if you really want consciousness to be tractable. And again, you might not, right? I'm not saying do this, right? But I'm saying if you decide, hey, you know, it bugs me. I don't, I want to know what consciousness might be from an evolutionary perspective. And I don't like the idea that, well, it's a hard problem, right? Which is what they call it. I would argue that the thing people do wrong is they imagine that consciousness is fundamentally an individual process. And it is obvious why they imagine that. We have individual consciousness. It is the only consciousness that we, we as individuals have direct verifiable contact with, right? In fact, it's the only thing Descartes was able to satisfactorily prove at the ground floor was that he must exist because he was conscious of being. So the point is, because the experience of individual consciousness is so vivid, we see it as primary. It does not add up that it would be primary, right? Why would you have a subjective experience of the universe at all? So many creatures get away with no subjective experience of the universe at all. And in fact, they have advantages over ones that have this experience and can be confused by it. So, the way to, to get to a rigorous explanation is to understand if you ask yourself, what is consciousness, right? 
not a trick question. What do people mean when they say that, right? I would argue, and Heather and I argue in our book, that it overlaps that fraction of cognition that is packaged for exchange between individuals, right? They're thoughts that you could convey. Those are your conscious thoughts. Unconscious or subconscious thoughts are ones that you couldn't convey. So if somebody says penny for your thoughts and you can hand it over, that's a conscious thought. So if we agree that sort of painting with a broad brush, if we exclude the outliers, the ways that people use the term that uh, are, you know, very idiosyncratic, then why would we have this intense overlap between the communication of something and the subjective experience of that something? And the answer is because the thing that makes human beings so utterly singular is our ability to share a concept. So what you and I are doing right now, I am vibrating air molecules. And because you and I have a language that is derived from a, an ancestral common language, you have a pretty freaking good idea what it is that I'm saying. Maybe not with precision, but we could establish if I say something truly surprising like um, a grapefruit limousine, right? Maybe grapefruit limousine is something nobody's ever said before. But if I say grapefruit limousine to you and then you draw a picture of what I said, we'll discover that although your picture won't look exactly like the one in my mind, that I did convey something just by vibrating air molecules, right? That's a pretty special trick. I vibrate the air molecules, a little membrane in, in your skull wobbles back and forth, and you get an abstract concept transmitted to you with a certain degree of fidelity. Why would we have that ability? Well, we have that ability because our minds, though our brains are actually entirely independent of each other, our minds can be joined. And there's a very good reason to join them. We join them because if you and I, instead of idly talking on a podcast about the meaning of the universe, were hunter-gatherers trying to figure out what the frick we're going to eat when our food sources failed, our pooling, our cognitive capacity might allow us to figure something out where otherwise, if we were just left with the sum of your cognition and my cognition, but we couldn't plug them into each other, we might starve. So the point is the most fundamental and almost certainly from our perspective, original version of consciousness is collective, but we don't see it that way because the experience of collective consciousness is not vivid the same way individual consciousness is. So the real question is why do we have individual consciousness? If collective consciousness is the reason that it evolved and the reason is, uh, can be stated as the emergent consciousness is more powerful than the sum of the individual consciousnesses put together, right? That that gives advantage or gave advantage to our ancestors. Then there's a question of, okay, now that you have a subjective experience that evolved for the purpose of exchanging abstractions in order to get an emergent solution to some problem. Is there any purpose that you as an individual could put that same, that same uh, module to? And the answer is yes. Anytime you have an argument with yourself about what to do or what to think, you are effectively creating a sort of pseudo emergent discussion inside your head, almost literally. And that also has a value. I mean, who amongst us has not talked themselves into something or out of something, either to their benefit or sometimes to their detriment? But basic point is, if you understand that consciousness probably 
started as a collective activity and then individual consciousness evolved on top of that, it makes a lot of sense. It's not a hard problem. The collective component is what I find most fascinating. And for me, at least given that this is what, how I see it, Brett, that however advanced we are in a particular discipline, we are dealing ultimately in the amplification of sensory information that is native sensory information, sight, sound, whatever. I believe beyond the instrumental faculty that we are granted as a species are different strata of data that are available, not directly perceptible due to the limitations of the dashboard of instruments available to us, but occasionally glimpsed, sometimes in circumstances that we might, might regard as paranormal or supernatural. And for me, they too pertain to this idea of a collective consciousness of which our individual ex experience is a kind of uh, point of attention. There's a sort of Ayurvedic um, myth or allegory of maybe you know it because of the extent of your studies known as Indra's net that Indra's net is cast across all phenomena known and unknown and at the point where the threads cross there is a jewel for me I regard consciousness as expressed through humanity but present beyond humanity and of course the idea that this can't be proven in a sense it, is just on that massive pile of other things that can't be proven either because of the limitations of our senses. And here is where I would try to somehow uh, circuitously tether, fractally, if as is necessary, the two sort of two parts of our conversation. The initial one, the, the vehement intention to intention to control a cultural myth in order to dominate resources to dominate attention to dominate the nature of reality and the attempt to posit that reality can never be dominated and controlled it is too vast there are too many potential realities that could be imagined into being at any point because we are connected to something limitless that has purpose and meaning and power that goes beyond the perpetuation of molecular data through time in itself a potential animalistic interpretation of something that perhaps could not be enshrined so simply again if we were to have access to an intelligence just one percent evolved to where we are let alone five or ten percent as like, um, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson came on here and m memorably said that, you know, in that 2% difference between us and chimps or culture or architecture or glory or God or really, you know, and to envisage 2% beyond. I'm not like stuck on a mystery, you know, that it needs to be a particular type of elves in a particular type of bejeweled gown. I'm just like want us to hold space for the possibility of the limitless and how that might impact us. And even a rather, you know, oddly um what do i say um sort of inappropriate to, re to regard buddhism as sort of stoic let's just say sort of somewhat ascetic and um mythically disciplined ideology like buddhism still in even in like spite of its sort of like the comfortable denial of a sort of a central parental force 
still says, you know, reincarnation, that consciousness itself seems to be actualizing itself through different individuals. And that, the, you know, like, well, the, the thing that I most agreed with that resonated most with me uh, that, that you said was that, that we, you know, construct and mimic the kind of tribal communications that would have been necessary in within the confines of our own imagination as a sort of, sort of as a component part of our persona, the persona we present, the persona that we feel both kind of born of the tension of this um, pra practical skill set to uh, consider and communicate. All of these, though, for me, feel like fragments of something sort of far greater and but like you know you recognize the and i certainly do the impossibility of my task because i am advocating for mystery i'm advocating for the unknowable and the indefinable to a you know an evolutionary biologist no 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 uh am i am i correct that neither of us has taken hallucinogenic drugs before this conversation <laughs> like uh, <laughs> i'm just drinking some psilocybin all right no, well like, okay that explains I, it i i took um I, i'm in recovery so i've not had any drugs at all for like sort of 18 and a half years but and prior to that i did like you know i was a kid so i took sort of hallucinogens then so i'd love to hear your evolutionarily uh, your, you know your perspective on that well, no, I, I just think we've we've arrived at a state that uh, a really good trip might contain. Um, I'm 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 loving the conversation because, you know, I, I hear your caution in saying things that, you know, some part of you intuits can't be defended. If I was going to uh, go after you on them, on the other hand, you're what you're really saying is, uh, I think these things that probably can't be defended deserve a defense of some other kind. And I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, one of the things that I think is very important when people, you know, this is true when you come from different cultures or even just if you come from different fields or different philosophies, you know, you can exchange information with anybody with whom you share a language, but it takes time to understand you know, the language is really in some ways a crude conduit. And one has to figure out how the other person's mind works before you can even evaluate whether they're, what they're saying makes sense because they are in effect speaking their own version of the language. And so I hear in what you're saying, something that I resonate with all too easily. In fact, I already described it. The cosmic joke is a question of, glimpsing the larger truth of, for me, biology or society or cosmology, that's about the best you can ever do, right? The truth is so, I mean, it's either so mundane as to be not worthy of comment, or it is so grand and peculiar that all you ever get is just that glimpse. And for me, the emotional response is one of uh, I don't know, bemusement, joy. It's funny. I find the truth of the universe funny. And I've, I see it manifest most interestingly to me in creatures. But what you're saying is a perfectly valid to me way of exploring and attempting not to destroy the beauty in the world with rigor, which is totally possible. Um, and I, I would also point out maybe the most, the clearest place to understand the tension that we, I think, are, are dancing around here 
has to do with love itself. It is perfectly possible to do a rigorous analysis of love. I think it's even possible to just kind of get it right, right? Love is also an adaptation and it is amenable to the same kinds of evolutionary analyses as consciousness or wings or eyes or whatever else. That said, if what you did was analyze it and sort of accept that that description of its purpose and its mechanisms was the sum total of it, you would completely miss out on the most glorious aspect of being a human being, which is to be able to cultivate love, to be worthy of it, to, uh, to experience it when you aren't worthy. All of these things have a deep meaning. And the trick is not to let a style of analysis like scientific rigor interfere with your ability to, to live. And I think in some sense, Russell, I hear you coming from a not formally scientific background and arriving at a good compromise of how you tap into the rigorous understanding of the universe without letting it destroy your ability to function. And I'm coming from the opposite end. I'm coming from, we have to understand what's going on if we're to navigate at all well, but that also cannot be allowed to destroy my humanity. And so, you know, I arrive in the same location, having traveled a different route. And the fact is what really matters, I mean, the irony, and you might even say that this is one way to, to phrase the cosmic joke is that once, once you have understood that the, the rigorous logical analysis leads you to something like that, how am I going to understand without it wrecking my ability to be? What you realize is that what's really important in a conversation like this one with somebody else is whether or not the underlying values are a good enough match to justify the exploration. And, you know, they clearly are, right? I'm sure they're not a perfect match, but well close enough. Yes, yes. And from a philological perspective, I, uh, and so purely essentially from a perspective of, you know, linguistics, that the term love under analysis mostly yields the concept union. And this idea of, well, that holds up for me, the idea that the, the feeling of love, regardless of its uh, object, is, a, 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 for me, suggests a kind of a oneness, that there is a connection, that there are unknowable shared values and uh, the connections that I that all is not utility all is not utility that there there is some coming together as well as coming apart expressing itself across time and where you feel this humor this um, the figure of the trickster at play in the dance of nature I um, This is something that I, I have a good relationship with the trickster energy <clears throat> and the spirit of chaos. It uses me sometimes against what I would say my better judgment and occasionally it seems like against my will and it's present with me. And But like the other way that I interface with these, with the, the mystery and sometimes these facts is awe 
you know, that I feel sometimes awe, sometimes I feel like the, the, the humor and the joy and the glory and the play of reality and, and it's the fact that it is unknowable and can't ever be um, uh, encased in language. But sometimes there is something sort of close to terror and sometimes something close to absolute wonder. And what I feel like has happened as a result, because, you know, if you, I would, this would be my, and perhaps this is not something you would agree with, but my, I feel like the, the, dominate, the dominant culture is, I believe, resourced by scientific materialism. I think that's the underlying ideology. And I think that the conclusions, yeah, I liked, I'm glad that that gave you a few glances around to see if that you were going to agree with it or dismantle <laughs> it or where you were going to go with it. But for me, like for me, what I see playing out in culture, in the systems we create, in the way that society is controlled and governed, where power resides, is this is what we do rationally, materially. We are individuals. Life is finite. Accrue resources. This, you know, this is. I feel that is the that is the rubric. That is the centripetal idea from which reality currently flows. I think the point where scientific rationalism was required, I think it did its job. I think it undid the dogmas of the church, the domination of uh, in the sort of, this, you know, you know, the Roman empire. And the, but like what I don't, but now I feel that what has happened is that we have been stripped of mystery and we are using a tool to describe things, you know, in an area that it can't function and it can never function. And not, not that, you know, the, the, the science should, you know, abandon ship, keep like, but what I feel like is we need to re-engage with reverence and the sacred, not in order to serve dogma and to centralize power in the hands of, you know, it's, but so that people can be here and participate in systems in meaningful ways. You know, but again, again, returning to some of the stuff we we're talking about at the beginning of our chat. Um, well, I think you're really going to like our book. Uh, we deal very <laughs> directly with the sacred and its meaning. And I would say, don't judge what you're calling scientific materialism too early, because what you're really looking at is an intermediate stage. We are basically in an adolescent stage of science, and it's not very healthy. Um, we lean far too heavily on reductionism and we don't do synthesis very well at all, very much to our detriment. No. And the fact is we can do this better. And I think if we do this better, we will arrive at something that will not do violence to the kind of meaning that you're discussing but at the moment you're right that effectively we are we have harnessed science to the same plow that evolution has inflicted on every creature this is what i was getting at before that if your purpose is the same purpose as uh you know a virus then it's not a good purpose and that purpose is about limited resources and the hoarding of them. And this is where, if humanity comes to understand that that just as mindlessly acquiring more money at the expense of everything else does not leave a person fulfilled, if we do this societally, if we continue to battle one lineage against another, 
in an attempt to capture resources and deny them to our competitors. A, this is going to be a very short ride with the current technology. And B, we will deny ourselves what we might have had instead, which is a world in which we decide to sideline that competition for something much better. Now, you can't do that naively. And, and one of the things I worry about on the left, even the, the rational left, is that we cannot, we must not flirt with utopianism. Utopias, I have said many times, probably the worst idea humans ever had. And every time somebody comes up with some version of utopia that they'd like to instantiate, they create something uh, that typically ends in some kind of atrocity. So we must not do that. But in recognizing that the mission that selection has built us for is not an honorable mission and that we are capable of better, we could build a system that did liberate people and did facilitate their pursuit of meaning and beauty and compassion and love and those things. That's not a utopian dream. That's actually the rational thing to do once you've glimpsed the, the cosmic joke and understood what it implies about where we are. We have a gift, right? We are here on a planet that we have done terrible things to, but it remains beautiful. There's still plenty to save. The descendants that will replace us have rights that are not spoken for properly in our systems of government, even the best systems, the democratic systems do not properly honor the rights of those who will live in the future. So we have to somehow integrate their, their well-being into our governance structures. But if we do it, we could, we could free ourselves from the mindless purpose that brought us to this point three and a half billion plus years into our evolution. And we could go forward doing something much better. And it would involve a kind of synthetic worldview rather than a reductionist one. It would involve recognizing what the tool of science is for and to what ends it should not be put. It would involve the recognition that markets are a double-edged sword, that they do certain things beautifully, better than any other mechanism, and they do great violence to us if we leave them to their own devices. All right, all of these things are comprehensible from here, but we're so busy playing the game that you were pointing out, the, the resource capture game, that in some sense we're going to miss our opportunity to, uh, to move into our next evolutionary phase, and for no good reason whatsoever. I like your analogy that science is yoked to a, like you know to a plow or to a greater dominator or um, to an authoritative force, and it, it seems that elsewhere what you were saying is that that force is free market capitalism. That science exists primarily in the service. There isn't a great deal of you know look at what we were talking about at the beginning. Who's conducting those experiments? Who's looking into the efficacy of non-profitable solutions to problems? And I feel that this is you know about one. One example of how you know of where the pinnacle of the pyramid is and how those ideas are in are practiced the praxis that results from that ideological pinnacle the, the only areas that as i say and as you have said elsewhere in our conversation that i dispute is the sort of in uh, the 
nihilism inhered within a merely physical description of the origin of our universe and the idea that the scope of our vision is the scope of potential reality it seems to me that like what's being said is there is no need to conject that there may you know there's enough beauty there's enough majesty and enough glory within what we can ascertain measure realize study and prove uh, for us not to speculate that elsewhere there may be different strata, other dimensions, different realms of reality. And, that, you know, and I know that that makes any scientist uncomfortable, that kind of language. I may as well have put a crystal on the desk, lit a joint and put a feather in my hair. But like, you know, but, but for me, what I, I feel like that, you know, like to your point about, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that this, that there is a, you know, the warrior and the priest must be honored, Moses and Aaron. There needs to be an interface with the unknowable that the, ultimately spirituality is about utility. How are we going to survive here? How are we going to survive being a person? How are we going to cope with one another? How are we going to cope with people being different? And in my personal striving for utopias is the inbuilt acknowledgement that my utopia might not be for everybody and that when it's utopia at the end of a gun that you know or when it's we're building a, a spiritual paradise but we're first we're going to poison the salad bar because the people in the neighboring town don't agree with us or in my utopia i'm going to be sleeping with everyone or i'm going to be taking all of your money then it's i think oh, we've been here before I, I recognize those values in spite of the robes well you know i uh, at the risk of pushing this too far i hear a little bit of ptsd in you really right? yes 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 um i hear the ptsd that comes from having scientifically minded people wag their finger at you in disapproval and i guess what i'm saying is i don't feel that you need to abandon your belief in a greater meaning at all, right? I don't even think it would be good for you to abandon it. It might be, but I don't think there's any reason to expect that it is. What I do think is that if we're going to govern ourselves, you got to have some people like me who are obsessed with seeing how far we can go with an absolutely brutally rigorous understanding of the universe. It doesn't make it easy. And it doesn't mean that anything that we think is true is rigorous, but the attempt to sort out how the universe works in the most rigorous, reproducible, uh, precisely definable terms is necessary for us to navigate in a way that it wasn't 200, 500, 1,000, 200,000 years ago, right? We are navigating now with tools that require us to understand the implications of what we do. And all I'm saying is there is, from my perspective, there is room at any dinner table for both those things to get yes. along perfectly peaceably. Any faith in God that cannot withstand at least all mankind's knowledge is no faith in God at all. And yes, we definitely need some people like you and some preferably one person like me <laughs> to establish these utopias by whatever means necessary, Brett. No, no. Uh, uh, look, 
I, I hear what you're saying. And I think we need, I, I, I don't mean to crowd you out of your own niche, but we need <laughs> as many people who are doing your kind of thing as we can find, you know, we, people who do this responsibly and, and with deep values and without an ulterior motive are, are pretty thin on the ground. But look, the question, the only thing ultimately that we have to agree on, and I wish we didn't have to agree on this because it's kind of a high bar, but the only thing we have to agree on is where we're trying to go, right? And if we can, you know, for example, we cannot allow the, we cannot agree to disagree over racism, for example, right? In my opinion, racism is bad. That's effectively, objectively demonstrable. And we have to compel those who don't agree to see the wisdom in it, right? That's something we can't agree to disagree over because you can't, obviously, if we are to put race aside as a predictor of success, it requires us all to be on board with that being a good idea, or at least enough of us to be on board with that being a good idea that it isn't upended by some powerful group of racists that wants to, you know, force their will down the rest of our throats at the point of a gun, right? So the values have to be agreed on, but I also don't think that's a especially hard problem, right? If you look at the left and the right in the West at the moment, the left and the right are in fierce disagreement about where we are in history, how close we've gotten to a fair society, for example. But it's pretty rare to find somebody even on the right who isn't in favor of the idea of a fair society, Right. Their mythology to themselves is very much about a fair society in which merit dictates uh, how well off you are and not arbitrary phenotypic characteristics. So to the extent that you can sit down even across the political spectrum and say, look, are we all agreed on the idea that a fair society is better than one that's slanted in some group's particular direction? Right. You'll get broad agreement on that. And then the question is, OK. Now, can we agree on how close we are to that goal? You won't get agreement on that. But as long as we understand the direction that we are to head, there's a lot that we can accomplish. Until we agree on what kind of world we want, do we want a sustainable world or do we want a uh, winner-take-all world, right? We have to agree that we want a sustainable world. I think it's pretty easy to defend that just on the basis that we pretty clearly have obligations to those who will live in the future. And if we don't agree on a sustainable world, we will deliver them a, a dim shadow of what we've got. That can't possibly be fair. So in any case, I think the values are not that hard for the most part, but we are going to have to agree on them. But in terms of agreeing on how to view the world, I think there's a lot of room, especially when we're not trying to, you know, to build a system on which our safety depends, for example, there's a lot of room for people to put the puzzle of the world and the meaning of life together differently. I don't see any reason we need to all get on the same page about that. No, I, I completely agree. And increasingly, the more that I look at what happens in the prescribed arena of political discourse, it looks to me to be of little more significance than what football team you support in terms of the outcomes. <laughs> Oh, it's very much a team sport at this point. And with that, <laughs> that, that, that tells you uh, 
that tells you how seriously it takes our well-being. <laughs> Brett, I think that's fantastic. I think we've got to wrap up there. And But, you know, as we've already agreed, you're going to come back on with Heather, talk about your first coming book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And I'm interested in talking to you in more depth about that because much of what I espouse when it comes to the establishment of systems i what i rely on is my autodidactic understanding of well how what are we evolved for what kind of groups would we live in how would we organize politics in a tribe of 150 people what systems of fairness would be in place how do we handle resources then and why are we trying to create great centralized structures for whose benefit for whose benefit what's the point if it doesn't suit us as very beautiful apes well that is going to be a great conversation you've just you've you've framed the problem beautifully and uh, i'm looking forward to to coming back and exploring further with you and heather that's assuming that one or both of us aren't in prison <laughs> well we can do this from prison right there, there must so. be there must be mechanisms prison radio is a thing that's allowed yeah so thank thanks brett all right thanks so much this was awesome Thank you for listening to Under Skin with Brett Weinstein. Let me know your four of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Come and see me on tour. Go to RussellBrand.com to find out when. If you want to listen to my audible original revelation, you still can. Above the noise, um, you know, do a meditation. Just click over and do that now. Chill yourself right out. Sign up to my community list. And if you enjoyed this with chat with Brett, why don't you listen to Jordan Peterson? Why? It's the intellectual dark web people. Intellectual dark web folk, <laughs> you know, who for sure that you make the world broke. Um, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. Good choices. Keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos and thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. So